Well, this Lord's Day, we are going to be continuing our study on the doctrine of prayer. This is the fifth lesson in this series. And today we're going to be continuing what we started last Lord's Day, which is a look at the Lord's Prayer, and in particular, the different parts of the Lord's Prayer, and from it, try to seek that understanding as to what God wants us to know and understand regarding how we pray from the prayer that he taught his disciples. So before we continue and look at two other petitions today, I wanted to do a quick review of what we have learned thus far. So if you recall, prayer as um, we see in our confession, is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession of our sins and a thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So that is what prayer is. And we know that when we pray to God, especially for things agreeable to his will, that our prayers are efficacious. Or in other words, that our prayers can and will be answered. And we know this first and foremost because when we, are, when we pray, we are praying to a God who actually exists. He is not an absent God. He is not a non-existent being, but rather he is a God who exists. And as such, we know that when we're praying, we're not praying to the wind. Not only that, but we know that our prayers are efficacious because our God, who exists, is in control of all creation. Also, our God is a God who is approachable. We can come to him through Christ. And not only that, we know that our prayers are efficacious because we, in the body of Christ, are in a covenantal relationship with him. And it's for all these reasons that we can take comfort and confidence in knowing that when we pray to God, that not only does he hear, but he also answers. And a few weeks ago, when we discussed prayer, and in particular, the mindset that we have in prayer, you know, I wanted to remind you that, you know, when we are praying, we're not merely praying to just some random person, but rather the God of the universe. And as such, our mindset must be reflective of one who is praying to this omnipotent and holy God. So as such, when we pray to God, we must have a reverence for him. We must be humble when we come to God. We must be thankful. We must pray with understanding. There must be a focus that we have when we pray. We must trust that when we pray to God that he will answer us. We must be sincere in our prayers, knowing that God hears our hearts. We must be persistent in our prayer. We must be patient. And there must be a submission to his will. Now, real quick, quick commercial break, because I see my daughter's hand raising. So, Jason, I hope you'll be able to cut this out. But I b believe if someone can please bring my daughter to the restroom, I would really appreciate that. So hopefully that'd be something that you'll be able to, to cut out. <laughs> Going back now to my lesson here. So these are all the things that we must have as it pertains to our mindset when it comes to prayer. Lastly, last Lord's Day, we looked at the first two parts of the Lord's Prayer. And in particular, 
the preface and the first petition. Now, interestingly enough, you know, we talked about the mindset of prayer. And what's interesting is when you look at the preface, as well as the first petition, it coincides with, you know, the two points that I mentioned, reverence and humility. Because in the preface, what do we see? Our Father, which art in heaven. And if you recall, when we looked at this, there were three things that we noted as it pertains to this preface. The first being the word our and the fact that when we are praying or, or the reminder um, in that our prayers or, or we as Christians are not in, in an individualistic religion, but rather we are part of this body of Christ. So then our prayers ought to reflect that from the standpoint that when we pray, it is not just for ourselves that we are praying, but for other brothers and sisters in the faith. That's why Jesus in his prayer says, our father and not my father or your father. Not only that, but he is our father, thus denoting that covenantal relationship that we are in through Christ. And not only is he our father, but he is our father, which art in heaven. Again, denoting the fact of his holiness, because we know that our God is omnipresent. So it's not like he just resides in one area, but rather we are reminded in the preface that our God is a holy God. Which is why in that first petition, Jesus says, hallowed be thy name. We must glorify him in our prayers. So these are the things that we have covered thus far. Now, this Lord's Day, we're going to be looking at the next two petitions, which are thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But before we look into that, one thing that as I was reflecting on this over the past week, that... And I thought is worth just us considering. And it's when you look at the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. What's interesting to me is it starts first with a focus on God and what God wants before when you look at the petitions in particular, before switching to us and what we want. I mean, Jesus says, our father, which are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So notice how all of those petitions have nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. There is a God-centered priority in prayer that we see in the Lord's prayer, and he's teaching his disciples and likewise also us. So now obviously, as we will see with the final three petitions, there will be petitions that we make that are directed towards us and our needs and our requests. But we must start our prayers or just have the mindset that, you know, our prayers have to have a focus on him. Because, see, when our prayers are God centered, one, first and foremost, we are less likely to pray prayers that are sinful and selfish. When our prayers are God centered, we are more likely to ask God for forgiveness of sins that we have committed. I mean, I want you to think of the, in Luke 18, the Pharisee as well as the tax collector and the difference in prayer between the two. One was clearly self-focused and the other was clearly God-focused. The tax collector. When our prayers are God-centered, we are more likely to pray for others who are part of the body of Christ. And again, this Lord's Day, we're going to be looking at the next two petitions. 
both of which primarily focus on God before we close out our lesson series looking at the final three petitions and conclusion. So let's go on to the second petition, which is thy kingdom come. After Jesus teaches us that we should glorify God in the first petition, he now instructs us to pray thy kingdom come. Now, what exactly is meant by God's kingdom? You know, first and foremost, I mean, we know that God has always ruled. I mean, in the Old Testament, God makes it clear that he is ruling. For example, in Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28, we read this. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations, plural, will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's present tense, not past tense or future tense. The kingdom is the Lord's and he rules present tense, not he will rule or he has ruled. He rules over the nation. And then we see in Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his thrones in the heaven and his sovereignty rules over all. And then in Psalm 47, excuse me, verses six through eight, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises for God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful song. God reigns over the nations not just over Israel, over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. So we see this fact from just these verses. And obviously, if you go through the Old Testament, there are many more verses that speak on this. But when we read this, we see that God is king, even in the old. But yet at the same time, we know that with the coming of Christ, something regarding God's kingdom was going to be made more manifest. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 2, when John the Baptist comes into the scene, he, as we read, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we see in Matthew 4, verse 17, with Jesus after being tempted by the devil and, of course, not falling into sin, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see the other fact, we know the fact of God always ruling, but we also see that there is this kingdom that is at hand. And I think one of the things that's helped me to really kind of connect these together or, or understand what we're looking at here is actually an account that we read with Paul when he's talking to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. So what I want to do is I want to quickly read this to you. This is in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31. We read this. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation 
that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also all his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. And here's the key in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So while God was reigning even in the Old Testament, we see that total submission to God's authority by all nations was not present. You had Israel, who, of course, submitted to God, albeit imperfectly. You did have some instances where Gentile nations were repentant, kind of foreshadowing things to come, such as the nation of Nineveh at the preaching of Jonah. But the totality of all the nations of the earth submitting to God's authority was not present during the Old Testament with Christ's coming. And him accomplishing his work of redemption, the time arrived for all the nations everywhere to bow the knee to Christ and to submit to his authority. This was to take place by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. As we see in the Great Commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Now, with the coming of Christ, we already began to see the dominion of Satan being greatly destroyed and hindered. Through the gospel, Satan's dominion will continue to be destroyed as God's kingdom continues to expand. We read, for example, in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 29, an account of Jesus um, removing a a demon from a demon-possessed man. And let me read the account. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed them, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Note what Jesus tells the Pharisees. He says, if I am casting out these demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, Did Jesus cast out demons? Yes, he did. Well, if Jesus did cast out demons, then it must follow that the kingdom of God was present. But note 
what else Jesus states? He says, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? In the same dialogue where he talks about the kingdom of God coming upon the people at that time, he also mentions the strong man being bound. That strong man being a reference to Satan. Matthew Henry, speaking on this, mentions the world that sat in darkness and lay in wickedness was in Satan's possession and under his power as a house in the possession and under the power of a strong man. So is every unregenerate soul. There Satan resides, there he rules. Now, the design of Christ's gospel was to spoil the devil's house, which, as a strong man, he kept in the world to turn the people from darkness to light, from sin to holiness, from this world to a better, from the power of Satan unto God, to alter the property of souls. Pursuant to this design, he bound the strong man when he cast out unclean spirits by his word. Thus he wrested the sword out of the devil's hand that he might wrest the scepter out of it. Now, after Jesus talks about this binding of the strong man, he then says this, and I love this passage. He says, and then he will plunder his house. Much like the Israelites, if you remember um, um, the, the story of the Exodus, much like the Israelites, after being freed from slavery in Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians of their gold and silver, the house of Satan will be plundered of many of those souls that were held in bondage to his tyranny and be made the property of the true king, King Jesus. Thus, what is meant by thy kingdom come is the growth and expansion of God's rule in the hearts of man by his Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And with this inward submission to God's kingly rule, the result will be the outflow of all the nations bowing the knee to Christ. Our shorter catechism in question 102, they put it in this way. They said, in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced. Ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, what we are praying for is that God may continue what he has already started, the advancement of his kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that all of us who submit to him as king may grow in that kingdom through his Holy Spirit. We're asking God for the reality of his kingdom to reign in our hearts and the hearts of all the nations, that we may live our lives with the knowledge and understanding that Christ is king and reigning and that we and the nations may submit to his rule and his authority. John Calvin commenting on this petition, he writes this. He says, this prayer, therefore, ought to withdraw from ought to withdraw us from the corruptions of the world which separate us from God and prevent his kingdom from flourishing within us. Secondly, it ought to inflame us with an ardent desire for the mortification of the flesh. And lastly, it ought to train us to the endurance of the cross, since this is the way in which God would have his kingdom to be advanced. And if it's the case that we are praying for God's kingdom to come, then it stands to reason what the, what is stated in the next petition. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For if we want for God to truly rule, then we would want for his will to be accomplished and obeyed. 
Our shorter catechism in question 103 puts it in this way. In the third petition, which is, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things, as the angels do in heaven. So now, when looking at the will of God, there are two aspects of it that we must understand. You have what's known as the secret or decretive will of God, and then you have what's known as the revealed will of God. Now, looking at God's secret or decretive will, what we mean is it's all those things that God has decreed to come to pass. It's that aspect of God's will which cannot be known ahead of time. They're hidden in him. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, that first part, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Being that God's secret will cannot be known ahead of time, what we ask for when we pray for his secret will to be done is that we may be able to humbly submit ourselves to it. We don't ask God to give us insight into his secret will. As a matter of fact, God forbids us from trying to figure out ahead of time what his secret will is. We read in Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 14. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a median, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. These are all people who in the, in the nations around them use to try and decipher the future, to try and figure out, okay, what is going to happen? And then Moses says, for whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. So the secret thing belongs to the Lord. But then we have also God's revealed will. And with that, it is all of those counsels that God has given us to know and obey in order to bring him glory, to grow in sanctification, and to live a good life as God has determined it. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 again, but now the second part. So we saw in the first part of this verse, the secret thing belongs to the Lord. But then we see in the latter half of this verse, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. And you know what's interesting? When you read the scriptures, God has made it perfectly plain what his will for our life is. It's no secret that we be sanctified and that he be glorified. First Thessalonians 3 verse 4, uh, 4 verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. 
Therefore, I urged you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, see, when we make this petition, we are asking God to enable us to humbly submit to his sovereign secret will, whether good or bad. And we are also asking God to enable us to know and follow his revealed will, humbly and faithfully. See, unfortunately, however, for many of us, that's easier said than done. You know, one of the problems that we run into is that rather than seeking to know God's revealed will so that we can follow it, we ignore it. And we try to somehow figure out God's secret will. We try, and you see this so often, people don't know what God's will is for their lives. So what they try to do is figure out through some signs or something like that what God might be wanting for them to, to do. And I think there are a few reasons why that is. First, I think it's obvious is that we, we crave certainty. And the revealed will of God does not provide us with the certainty we crave for when it comes to difficult decisions. Because we want certainty, we will be dissatisfied with anything that does not give us that. Secondly, we lack faith in God. And we, we simply don't have the faith to believe that if we follow his revealed will, all will end up well for us. You know, it's... it's you know, the old adage of, you know, we may believe in God, but we really don't believe God. And God's revealed will forces us to rely on faith. And many of us simply don't have the faith to trust in God's revealed will. We want the certainty of knowing rather than the confidence of trusting. You know, we want to have certainty where God wants us to have faith. And it reminds me of, you know, when you read Hebrews 11 and you read the account of all the men and women of faith that the author gives us. You, know, you have the account of Abraham and Sarah and God promising them a son. And of course, Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 89 or 90 years old, well past the age of bearing children. And I'm sure they would have loved to have been able to see into the future and to see the fact of this promised child being born. But, of course, they could not. They had to just rely on the word of God, his revealed will to them that they will have a child. And for them, they had to act on that by faith. You know, if we humble ourselves and we place our faith in God who rules heaven and earth and follow his revealed will, we will never be led astray. I mean, the psalmist writes to us in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to our feet, to my feet, and a light to my path. So if you want to know how you walk and what decision you make, you turn to the word of God. If you are uncertain regarding if you are making a right choice, you go to the scriptures, you discern, you help to see, will this decision, whatever it may be, bring honor and glory to God? Are there principles that are 
that you need to draw out from the scriptures in order to discern. The scriptures, when you read, understand, obey, and submit to it, will shine a light in the right path for you. G.I. Williamson, who um, is an author and retired minister in the OPC, he, he writes this in his book on the Shorter Catechism. He writes, we are not to be conformed to this age, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to work with the great principles and precepts of God's word. By the gracious work and power of the Holy Spirit, we are to think out the meaning and implication of God's revealed will in order that we might know what is good and acceptable and perfect. So see, we are to take God's revealed will, his holy word, think through the implications. And see, through doing that, your path will be made clear. The word becomes that light to guide and direct you to choose the good way, to choose what is pleasing to him. So, as we close the first half of the Lord's Prayer, don't forget, first and foremost, who is ruling heaven and earth. It's God. He has sent his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die for our sins so that we may live lives that glorify him. And we see that God's kingdom spreads not through military might or force, but by the power of the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit. As king, God has given us his precepts to follow and obey. Now, because of the remaining corruption in our flesh, obeying those precepts are difficult to do. So we ask God to enable us to be willing and able to accomplish this. We also ask him to enable us to submit to that aspect of his will that he has chosen to keep secret from us, even if we don't like what it is, as we see with Job. Above all, we ask for God to continue to spread his kingdom throughout the entire globe through the success of the gospel message by the power of the Holy Spirit until every knee bows before him and acknowledges him as Lord and King. So thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, this concludes our lesson for today.